Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You ever have a moment where somebody says something to you and it makes you feel incredibly proud of yourself? My sister-in-law was throwing a St. Patrick's Day party one year. Now, I was the one who used to throw these parties all the time, but for whatever reason, um, I couldn't do it. I was busy. I had other plans, something. And so she took it upon herself for our group of friends to throw a St. Patrick's Day party. And she says to me, she says, hey, Jared, are you going to make it out by this time or that time, knowing that I would probably be late? And I said, well, I'm not really sure I'll be able to make it. And she says, I really hope you can make it because we need you to tell the story. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but it made me immensely proud. It had become my practice over the years to have St. Patrick's Day parties and to, around a fire, tell the story of St. Patrick. Indeed, we have made that day about Irish heritage and green beer, but I always wanted to remind the people that it is so much more. It's about a person of incredible faith and courage. And so we tell that story. But, but I loved it when she said, and I felt proud when she said to me, we need to hear the story. It's what we do. We humans are storytelling and ritualistic animals, aren't we? We mark occasions similarly, you know, on the calendar. We do the similar kinds of things almost every major holiday. I know that on birthdays, for instance, it's universal to turn off lights, have a cake, put some candles on it, and sing a song. Happy birthday. It's a thing we do at a certain moment to remember and to celebrate. Uh, something the long bonds like to do is basically rehearse the same stories that we've been telling for years. I don't know if that's you at all. But we had a large gathering of folks in my parents' living room, and it concluded my good buddy Dan. And we started going off telling these stories. These are stories that inform our community, and we perform them, which in a way also forms our community. And as I was telling the story, my buddy Dan was giggling at me, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I've told you this one before. And he just smiled, and he goes, that's just what you guys do. It's who you are. We find ways to mark our story and to mark our experience as communities. And Psalm 113 works in a very similar way. It's part of what we call the Egyptian Hallel's that means praises. You see, this is a psalm that would have been sung to remember what God had done for God's people by leading them away from the slavery of Egypt and liberation and freedom that they would find in the land as God's covenanted people. In fact, Psalm 113 is sung and stated and read and prayed to this very day during Passover 
it marks a memory for a community. Remember who we are. Remember what God has done for us. Remember that our God is the God of all nations, even the nation that held us captive. It begins rather simply, doesn't it? Praise the Lord. And then it says it again. Praise the Lord. The first four verses are basically a communal command and call to praise. Sure, in history, it's about, it's, it's about praising God for what he's done to free a people, but it is also a universal praise of God. Lift up God, for he is above every nation, it says in verse 4. It all just simply means, if that's true, that God is deserving of human respect, adoration, and worship. I think what's being extolled here in this ancient song is a fundamental human insight. The psalmist is calling the people to gratitude. Gratitude is fundamental to our life. I submit to you that you cannot have faith until you have first had gratitude. It is a precondition for belief. I submit to you, you cannot be happy until you first had gratitude. Gratitude is a precondition to your mental health. And the psalmist is calling the people to be grateful for a God who is good and a God who is there and a God who is not silent. Gratitude. A couple weeks ago, I did my most recent wedding and the last premarital counseling session, we were trying to hammer out some details of what we would do in the worship service, which is always a particular sort of calculus. Are they going to have communion at the wedding or not? Well, uh, the bride's from a Catholic background, the groom's from a Methodist background, and, and so we try to fill out all the gaps and figure out what will work for the people involved. Are you going to do a unity candle? Are you going to kneel or not kneel? And then I always try to sell them on this one thing. I looked at the groom and the bride in the eyes and I said, do you want to have a memory candle? Oh, I think you ought to have one. And they said, what's that? We've never heard of that before. I said, oh, well, on the altar... We often light a candle. It's lit before the service. And it's to stand in place for the people who could not make it to your wedding, either because, A, they have gone before us and they're with the Lord, or B, they couldn't make it for some other reason. And I said, I love it because it's an admission that you two did not make up your lives. It's an admission that you did not create your story. It's an admission that you stand, your life stands on the shoulders of other people who have given you a chance to live. It's an admission that your story comes from the stories of other people. It is an admission that your love has flown out of the love of other people. It's gratitude. And the groom began to shed a tear. And he said, I love that. I do too. Something primordial and deep inside of us it's a call to be grateful, to offer praise and thanksgiving. Verse 5, though, actually sets this psalm off as far as I'm concerned. Let me, let me read it to you. The psalmist asks, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? I, I'm going to put it another way. The psalmist might say this, Who is like the Lord, and therefore who is worthy of our worship? 
Many times when we think of the ancient Jews, we think of them as a monotheistic people because Judaism is a monotheistic uh, faith. But in ancient Judaism, not so. The technical religious word is they believed in a sort of monolatry. That is to say this. They actually did not deny that maybe another nation might have a god or another people might have some sort of local folk deity. They didn't deny these things. But for the ancient Hebrew, here is what they thought about their God. Their God was the most powerful. In fact, this is the one who led them to liberation. Their God is also the most wise. And their God was the most loving. In short, our God is simply the best. That would have been more the mindset of the ancient person of faith. Yet when I think of this question today, who is worthy of praise, it occurs to me that the object or subject of our praise has evolved as humanity has evolved. Or might I say, it's devolved. Fundamentally, we turned our imaginations to deity. But over time and with human history, we have found a lot of other objects or subjects that we find praiseworthy. I'll just give you a few because these few touch you and me. Starting in at least the 16th century, I believe we began to worship the nation state. The 16th century is when the nation state, the modern nation state was born. It's the period of time where the church gets eclipsed by the secular government. In fact, since the 16th century, the mission of the church has been co-opted by the state very slowly and over time, and it happens to this very day. What are you talking about the 16th century for, Jared? That's far off. Well, it's true, but let me say, I can still see the seeds of our devotion to king and country, whatever it is today. I have heard presidents, both Republican and Democrat, say this. Don't you know that America is the shining city on a hill? Jesus would disagree with you, my friend. Jesus said the city shining on the hill was his people, the church. I, I can show you hymns and certain songs that are sung where the death of a soldier is spoken of in the same exact way as the death of Jesus Christ. I know that we all have the best of intentions, but sometimes our love becomes disordered or overly ordered. I don't want to go too far down this road, but let me say another object of our devotion, especially in the mid-20th century, was corporations and labor practices and labor laws. There was a time in our country when some people would be incredibly devoted to the hand that fed them. You could be a Ford man. I could live on my pension. What we make, we're proud of. I know that's slipped away in our country. We don't make as much as we used to, but we still devote ourselves to places that help us get a leg up. And more recently, I think our worship has evolved, or rather, again, devolved, to focus on the tech guru. Oh, whoever can do the tech guru thing promises us some liberation from a failure we have in our humanity. I think it's the reason why Elizabeth Holmes was able to become who she was. 
If you haven't been following the story, Elizabeth Holmes has invented a company called Theranos. The idea is that therapy and diagnosis go together. And she dropped out of Stanford because she had this idea that if you could just take a single pinprick of blood, you can test for almost every single thing that they test blood for. The problem is, it's a great idea, the problem is it's impossible physically. But she got enough people to buy into her charisma. She started even wearing Steve Jobs turtlenecks every day. She got people to buy into the image of, of, the, of, the, of the person that can bring this technological savior, change to the world, that people gave her so much money. People have gone broke giving her money. And the company itself ended up being a fraud. We, we, we can do this in our world because we're looking for a savior. Are these examples of where our praise goes or anything else worthy of praise like God is to be given? No. No. For no thing that I've mentioned, good thing I mentioned or bad thing I've mentioned, can do what the psalmist says and boasts that God can do. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me a bit more carefully. talks about God here looking down, far down on the heavens and earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In those verses, the psalmist offers poetic reasons for the praise of God. God makes life from the dirt. God uplifts the lowly. God alone gives life. Simply put, God is the giver of life. And no matter how good we get at our technological colonial pursuit of this rock called earth, that is the one thing we will never get a handle on, accounting for life. You remember from other stories of mine that in my past community, I had a very, very large community garden that I was in charge of. I tried to get people to work in it. And there's a young man, he was a very thoughtful guy. He studied the philosophy and theology a lot. In fact, um, that's kind of he, all he did in the spare time. So I said, hey, man, why don't you come out and garden with us? And he said, no, I'm just going to go read. But I'll tell you this. He said, if I ever get married, if I ever have some kids, that's one thing I'm going to make sure we do at the home is we're going to garden. I was delighted by that, but I was curious as to why. So I says to him, says I, why? And he says, because I think it's the easiest way to show your kid that you cannot make life. When you go into the garden, I can assure you of this. You can kill that which is living. You can help that which is living flourish. You can help it along. But ultimately, there is something, a place where you, you stop and you just simply cannot account for the life of something. It is, by its own nature, going to grow or not. Wow. Profound insight. And the psalmist reminds us that it is only God who can give life. These are strong. I know they don't appear it, but these are strong 
countercultural words, I'm speaking to you because ours is a technocentric society. Make no mistake of that. We've entered into a time that E.F. Schumacher has described the forward stampede of modernity. Do you know what that is? It's the idea that we're going to go ahead and figure out new things that we can do with our tech without regard to the aftermath and results because we just think eventually we're going to come up with more new and greater tech down the road to fix the problems we've been creating in the past and in our present. It stampedes and rolls over everything. Worried about atmospheres, now we'll figure out a solution. Plastics ruining oceans, we'll figure out something. Hey, let's use CRISPR. Genetically modify embryos. We're not sure what's going to happen. We'll just figure it out. I'm describing a milieu we all live in, where we give our devotion, our attention, and our time, our praise, to things other than the one who can truly give life, the one who can truly make your life, and make your life new. Our worship has evolved. Again, I'll say it, maybe it's devolved. Focus on things, trifles, futile devices as compared to God. But this psalm of praise is a radical call to remind us, go back to the start. Go back to the first. Go back to that which cannot be even imagined. Go back to God, for it is God who is the God of life, and God is the one who saves us from ourselves. It's God alone who's worthy of our praise.